This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's uh, sermon uh, enters into and relates to uh, a topic that makes many of us uncomfortable and confused and frustrated and causes many to be disenfranchised and disenchanted, I would say, with the Bible. So currently we're studying through the book of Exodus, and uh, we're at the point in the story uh, where, where Exodus is traveling through the wilderness. And we're finally at that passage in the book of Exodus uh, that recounts uh, Israel's first war or battle as a people. It's the first time of many times, if you know your Bible, where, where God doesn't simply fight for uh, his people and God doesn't simply defend his people, but God fights his enemy through his people. So the topic, uh, quote, of holy war causes many of us discomfort and, and confusion and even disbelief in the Bible and in the God of the Bible. Now, holy war as a term is not, uh, holy war, those are not words that you're going to find together uh, in the pages of the Bible. But holy war uh, is a phrase frequently used to describe this practice of the biblical God who takes the battle to his enemy through his people. If you just simply glance at our text, it's not that, uh, that uncomfortable. Amalek or the Amalekites, they attack Israel and they lose. But if you actually take time to dig into the text and follow this line through the rest of Scripture, the rest of the Bible, you're going to see that God promises in verse 14. He promises in verse 16. He says, I'm going to seek out the Amalekites in the future. And he promises to utterly blot out the memory of Amalek. God promises to obliterate them. And he says that he's going to do it, and you're going to read in the Bible that he does it through his people, Israel. There are simply two points this morning, uh, and then a transition into communion. Holy war then, and holy war now. Holy war then in the day and age of Israel in Exodus 17, and holy war now in our day and age. Holy war then in their moment in God's plan and story, at, at their point in God's redemptive history, and then holy war now for us. So holy war then and holy war now. I might as well tell you this is going to be two sermons. I kind of decided early on that I would give a little more of an academic approach this week. And next week will be very uh, application oriented as we kind of land on what does it look like to be us uh, in the context of still being at war. Okay, so first, holy war then. So let's just start by understanding the scriptures and we'll move out from there. So go look at verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So in our text, Moses doesn't provide any details of this initial attack by Amalek. But in Deuteronomy 25, Moses is recounting this exact same story, and he gives these details. Listen, he says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and how he cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and how he did not fear God. So, so at the end of verse 8, Amalek has sectioned off. He's essentially kidnapped the weakest and most vulnerable portion of Israel, those lagging behind. And, and most likely, the Amalekites have threatened harm to the weak unless all of Israel uh, gives over the plunder that they had carried out 
of Egypt. And we know from other passages in Scripture that this is the MO, this is the modus operandi of Amalek. The the Amalekites uh, lived by attacking other established people groups in and around the wilderness. And the Amalekites lived by attacking anyone who dared travel through the wilderness. Listen to this description in the book of Judges of the Amalekites attacking Israel some years later. Whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Amalekites would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land. For they would come up with their livestock and with their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they would lay waste to the land as they came into it. So Amalek was a nomadic nation, no permanent home. They were vicious desert pirates. Interesting, I didn't know this, um, but interestingly, the Amalekites decided to um, domesticate camels instead of horses. One obvious reason is because camels can do well in the desert. One reason uh, I didn't understand is that I guess camels can run like 45 miles an hour over short distances. So horses and chariots are no match for a camel. So these pirates would just wander up to uh, people in and around the wilderness and those traveling through the wilderness and kidnap until ransom has been paid. So Israel, God's chosen people, are under attack. They're being attacked by an evil enemy that is far superior to them in and of themselves. Verse 9, so Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. But you know it's holy war by what Moses says next. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So so remember, Moses' staff in Exodus symbolizes the presence of God with his people. But more specifically, it represents God's wrath and God's justice and God's judgment against evil. In Exodus 7, God's staff turns into a snake and it swallows up the staff slash snakes of the magicians showing God's victory over the gods of Egypt. Later, God's staff was heavily present uh, in the plague narrative, showing God's judgment against the idols of Egypt. In Exodus 14, God's staff was there when the Egyptian army drowned in the sea, God's righteous wrath coming down and crashing down on the oppressor. And here now, Moses tells Joshua to fight, but he lets him know. Uh, he, He basically is saying to him that ultimately and supremely what is happening is this. God's judgment is coming down on Amalek. And so in verses 10 through 13, it describes the reality that this superior physical army known as the Amalekites, they would prevail unless the symbol of God's spiritual presence and judgment against evil was over Moses' head. Moses is the leader of the people. When the staff was down, the people lost. When the staff was up, the people prevailed. And so the story is told of Moses' arms literally getting heavy because no human being can hold their arms above their head all day. And so what happened is Aaron and Hur come alongside of him and they set a rock down underneath him and they are able to keep their hands underneath their shoulders and hold his shoulders and arms up to keep the staff of God in the air. And as long as God's staff was above Moses' head, Israel prevailed. It was the holy, pure, and righteous Lord judging and defeating evil. That's called holy war. So in verse 15, we we read that Moses built a memorial altar to the Lord and he literally named it. All the commentators I read, I read seven this week. They all said it should be literally named the Lord is my signal pole. 
So military commanders, they would stand on hills and they would hold up signal poles in order to communicate direction and encouragement to the troops below. And then Moses says in verse 16, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. What was Moses' hand on? The staff. So he's saying both symbolically. The staff was God. The Lord is my signal pole. And he said, I held in my hand the throne on which the judge sat when he judged and destroyed the Amalekites. So at the end of the day, verse 13, Joshua overwhelmed, weakened, wore down Amalek. So again, in Deuteronomy 25, when, when Moses recounted the attack of the Amalekites on Israel, he writes that, that they attacked those in the back, those who were weakened and worn down and, and literally disabled. And now, same word, we see that God, through Joshua, weakened those who prayed on the weak. And he disabled those who attacked the disabled. In holy war, God in his holiness and justice defeats evil. One, one more thing to see in the text, and we're going to summarize and, and move on. The Amalekites, they were not decimated that day. They were weakened. Which, this is why God tells Moses, if you look in verse 14, make sure Joshua, your successor, knows that I want to wipe them out. Essentially, Deuteronomy 25, if you understand when Moses wrote and why he wrote, Deuteronomy 25, the passage I've referenced number, uh, a number of times in this sermon, that is Moses putting into the ear of Joshua this command. Deuteronomy 25, 19. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So Joshua in his life, if you know how the story unfolds, he primarily battled the Canaanites. <clears throat> he was never directed by God uh, to go after and find Amalek. So one of the first things God tells King Saul to do, King Saul is the first king in Israel that one of the first commands he gets is to go find the Amalekites and wipe them out now. And of course, if you know the story, Saul failed. Uh, he kept spoil from the war for himself, and he kept the king uh, of the Amalekites alive when God said, I want all of it devoted to destruction. And, and the Bible says this is the reason why God disowned him and left him and replaced him with David, who eventually devoted to destruction the Amalekites. So let's move on, but let's summarize first. Holy war, then. God's chosen people were being attacked by a selfish, arrogant, personal, vicious evil. God's people were being attacked by an army far superior to them in and of themselves, and an evil enemy whose strategy was to prey on the isolated, the weak, and the struggling. And while God was capable of simply fighting for his people, he did this at the Red Sea. God chose to fight evil through his people. God's purpose in war was this, the judgment, the defeat, and the complete obliteration of evil. When God chose to use his people to battle evil uh, this way, whenever he chose in the Old Testament to use them, he would do it in such a way that clearly proves that he was in fact the one providing the strength, the one providing uh, the, the, the battle, the one providing the victory. So in our story, the Israelites prevailed only when the staff of God was over Moses' head. The Israelites, untrained in warfare, mustered for war in a single night. Weak and tired from desert wanderings, they prevailed over professional mercenaries, pirates. 
So if you study holy war in the Old Testament, you will see over and over in the laws regarding holy war and in the stories about holy war. Holy war was not Israel ruthlessly fighting their enemies by their own strength in order to get what they wanted. Holy war was God fighting his enemies through his people in order to eradicate evil and in order to give his people what he wanted them to have. Now, holy war now. In our day and age, at this point in the story and in the purposes of God, we have said over and over in this section of Exodus that the wilderness experience for the Israelites is a picture and a pattern and a paradigm for our lives in Christ in the age in which we live. And so now we have to ask this incredible question, how does this story apply to us? Uh, in what way does this passage, what way does the concept of holy war uh, apply to our lives? Okay, so now this is the place largely where the confusion and the discomfort and the disenchantment comes in. Okay, so it's annoying and wrong to hear someone pray to God, asking God to hurt someone else because that someone else is their enemy. And it's annoying and wrong to hear that person assume that that person is God's enemy because they're their enemy. That's annoying. But it's repulsive and disgusting to hear Anders Breivik this week talk about his actions on July 22nd, 2011 as holy war. Breivik killed 77 people, mostly teenagers, And he has called his actions holy war. He has said that his actions were part of the Christian God's fight against Muslims and multiculturalism in Norway and Europe. I must clearly state to avoid any confusion right now, praying for God to hurt people and hurting people in God's name is dead wrong, clearly unbiblical. So we still haven't answered our question. How does this passage apply to us today. In what way is this a paradigm and a pattern for our lives? What I want to do first is I want to give three developments, three transitions from the Holy War of the Old Testament to the Holy War of the New Testament. And I want to talk about massive dissimilarities and differences between us and Exodus 17. And then I want to go back though, and I want to show how Exodus 17 in this nuanced way is a paradigm for our lives. Okay. So first development, first difference. I'm going to read this so that I say it well. While there are still on earth humans who are God's people who worship him and humans who are not God's people who do not worship him, God's people now are no longer identified as a geopolitical entity like Israel in the Old Testament. The New Testament says that the true Israel is now the church of Jesus Christ. Further, Paul says that in Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Greek, Galatians 3. In other words, the war now cannot be drawn down national nor ethnic lines. Second, second development that brings a dissimilarity between holy war in the Old Testament and holy war now. While there are evil humans who are opposed to God and who are his eternal enemies, God doesn't tell us who those eternal enemies are. That's not our information and it's none of our business. God clearly 
in the Old Testament, he would tell Israel who he wanted to fight and when he wanted to fight them. And even in the Old Testament, when Israel tried to fight who they wanted, when they wanted, every time they lost miserably, even when they fought superstitiously in the name of the Lord. In the New Testament, God says we will have enemies, human enemies, but we're never called to do anything other than love, serve, and pray for them. Jesus says in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, and he quotes the Old Testament, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is saying we have a development here. We have a little bit of a transition. This is going to make a massive difference in your life. Further, even if self-declared enemies of the church of Jesus may, may um, even if someone declares themselves as an enemy of the church, they may not ultimately be an eternal enemy of God. This is, uh, this is largely why God encourages us to love them and pray for them, because we have no idea where they'll land. Case in point, the Apostle Paul. Paul zealously persecuted the church for a significant portion of his life, even at times picking on the weak. But God converted him. God saved him. God forgave him. God used him mightily in the advancement of his kingdom, which is a synonym for holy war in the New Testament age. Third, this one is incredibly important. Huge development that brings a difference. While we are still in a battle with an evil enemy, Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is not against people. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The battle is not against flesh and blood. It is not physical. It's against devil and demon. So with these three massive developments, these differences, these dissimilarities in mind, I do want to go back to the text and I want to talk about how this is actually a paradigm for us. First, three ideas. First, we as God's people, we are under attack by an evil foe. He is stronger than us in and of ourselves and he tends to prey on and focus on the weak and isolated. Listen to the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 5. Be sober-minded, be watchful. It's a word for diligence and vigilance. Your adversary, this is your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Devour. Think of the mental picture that, that Peter is conjuring up in this verse. There's a lion, a hungry, vicious lion, quietly and slowly prowling around the edges of a flock of sheep, trying to isolate one or find one, uh, usually a young one. And he wants them off by themselves in a vulnerable place. And the lion has no intention other than devouring and destroying that sheep. And what Paul, or excuse me, what is, what is Peter's instruction to us? Be sober-minded. Life is not one big party. He, He says, be watchful. He's like, be aware, you're not on vacation. You're at war. Quick questions of application. This week, did you at any point recognize, acknowledge, align yourself and your life and your community to the reality that the prince of darkness 
wants to ruin you, kidnap you, and destroy you. Sometimes things happen to us in life that causes us to lag behind the community. And then that's the community's job to go and find you. But sometimes in life, we live at arm's length with God's people. We try to stay on the periphery and call the shots ourselves. We, like the Israelites, are under attack and the the enemy likes to attack the edges. Secondly, like Exodus 17, God chooses to battle and fight through his people. Again, a couple weeks from today, I'm going to preach an entire sermon on how we fight, okay? But let me quickly say this. We are not simply under attack, but we've also been drafted. Verse 9 of our text, Joshua, choose men and go fight. So when my age group hears drafted, we hear NBA, uh, we hear um, Major League Baseball, we, we hear uh, NHL, we hear sports and money. When my dad hears drafted, he thinks of 18-year-olds going off to war. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we proactively wage war. We don't just stand firm and wrestle when attacked, but we take the battle to the enemy with spiritual weapons given to us by God. More on that in two weeks. Finally, thankfully, third way in which Exodus 17 is our story, God wins. Good wins. Verse 13, Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So in 1 Peter 5, Peter, in talking about Satan, he does not say, be scared. He does not say, be worried. He does not say, be anxious. He says, be sober-minded. It's like, don't have a drunken mind. And he says, be vigilant. He just says, be on the lookout. And then he says, when Satan attacks you, assume he's going to, just like Paul in Ephesians 6, when Satan attacks you, resist him. Stand firm in your faith. And then he indicates that after a while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, he says this about God. God will restore you and confirm you and strengthen you and establish you just like our story. Who fights? God fights. And you fight. Who wins? God wins. And you win in him. All right? Now, the sermon I know is essentially half preached, okay? The second half is hopefully going to be here in a couple of weeks, but I want to kind of conclude and transition into communion this way. And what I want to do is I want to take our minds back. It might actually help if you get your worship folder out. I want to go back and hear with fresh ears uh, what Paul says in Romans 8. It's the passage we use in the call to worship. Paul asks this in verse 35. Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ. And then in that passage, Paul lists off at least 17 realities that cannot partition us off or kidnap us from all the great things that God wants to give to his people. Included in those 17 realities that cannot separate us from God are these, angels, rulers, and powers. An enemy stronger than us, but nothing compared to God. But 
Even with that said, there could be and probably should be this nagging, horrifying thought in our hearts and in our minds, and that is this. If holy war then and now is God fighting, defeating, and judging evil, and if evil is arrogance and self-centeredness and self-promotion against others, then I'm in trouble. Because when good wins, what happens when you're not good? And when holiness wins, what happens when you're not holy? Friends, I'm a sinner. I'm wicked. I'm not holy. I'm selfish and self-centered just like you. Just yesterday, two members of my family, I had to pursue them and tell them, I regret and I'm sad for and I apologize for how my selfish arrogance oppressed you and hurt you today. It's not to say that I only sinned twice yesterday. It's just I only recognized two of them. (laughs) What do we do? Right? There's a part of all of us that rejoices in the notion that good wins and evil loses. But at the same time, the thought of that reality on some level should at least for a moment paralyze us. In communion, we celebrate, we believe, and we rejoice in this. That in the list of the 17 realities that cannot separate us from God, included in that list is the all-inclusive, nothing in creation, uh, including our sin, can separate us from God. And you see the reason why nothing in creation, including our sin, can separate us from God and, and can take us away from all that he wants to give us The reason is given in chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In communion, in the gospel, we are saying this, that our sin cannot separate us from God because Jesus was cut off in our place for our sin. That we would be obliterated in God's holy war except this, Jesus was obliterated in our place on the cross. We're saying this, we have not been good, we have not been righteous, but we win when good wins because Jesus gave us his righteousness at the cross. That is what we believe and celebrate and rejoice in communion. Let's pray. Jesus, we look at the bread and the wine, that which you have said is your body and your blood, and we realize that at the cross, holy war happened to you. We thank you that at the cross, you took our sin upon yourself, and we thank you at the cross as you were held high. We thank you that you were smitten, destroyed, obliterated, killed for us. We thank you that our entrance into God's army and family and people is not based on our works. It is not something we have to keep doing. It is something that you have given to us by grace. We praise you, Jesus, that you have done such a significant and amazing work at the cross. Jesus, I ask you to feed us for the battle that is at hand while we take communion. I pray that as we take your body and blood into our being, that you would strengthen us in faith and in purpose. 
that we might be used by you to eradicate evil in our city as those who humbly have been forgiven 